John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 22, and we're going to work through down through verse 59. That's the bulk of uh, this discourse. Um, we're going to walk through this. And in this passage, we see that we need to realize that faith in Jesus is the only means of salvation. That God wants us to come to Jesus in faith for salvation. Well, why does he want us to do that? Well, he wants us to do that for, for three reasons. And that's what we're going to look at here. And we're going to, we've got kind of a, a lot to get through, so I don't want to take too long. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, I'm not going to read every verse of the whole thing. I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. Um, but we're going to start just by, jump down to verse 35. And we're going to read verses 35 to 40 as we get started here. John 6, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you shall have that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So we're going to look at verses 22 to 40 in this first section, but we see here, especially in verses 35 to 40, we see the first reason. The first reason God wants us to come to Jesus in faith for salvation is that Jesus was sent. He was sent. He was sent. Now, we need to back up just a little bit for some context of what is happening and where we're at. Verses 1 through 14 is John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. So you'll remember that... Uh, most of that uh, uh, story and even John's account here, um, where, uh, where John records that Andrew, Simon's brother, Simon Peter's brother, finds a lad here, a boy with five barley loaves and two small fish. But what is this among so many? And Jesus divides these, this, this small meal for a boy to feed 5,000 plus people. Following that, saying that they are going to try and take him by force and make him king, proclaim him king. He kind of dismisses the crowd. He sends the disciples away, and he retreats to the, to the nearby mountain to spend some time in prayer and communion. And then in verses 15 through 21, we have the account of Jesus walking on the water, meeting with the disciples. So we pick up in verse 22, and this is the morning following the feeding of the 5,000. I don't know if the whole crowd was dispersed or if a number of them were still in the area, but some of them were still there. So this is, but this is the morning after. At some point during the night following that meal, some ships from the city of Tiberias, a major city on the, on the west side of the lake, had crossed and had anchored near where the crowd had been fed by Jesus the day before. 
We don't know how many ships or how large the crowd that's currently there was, uh, but I think it's safe to say that it wasn't the whole 5,000 plus person crowd. Either way, the crowd there looks for Jesus, not finding him anywhere around, knowing that the disciples left by themselves, can't find Jesus, a little confused, they hire these ships from Tiberias, and they cross the lake and go to Capernaum. They figure it's probably the safest place to start looking for Jesus. Because once in Capernaum, you'll remember, as they did, this was Jesus' primary center for ministering in Galilee. That was his home base. He often returned there and would minister in the villages and area around it. So once in Capernaum, they begin to look for Jesus and find him, according to verse 59, the very last verse of our section, in the synagogue. Now, some of the resources I looked at place, place everything, this whole discourse, in the synagogue. Uh, at least one or two suggests maybe the latter half of this discourse, of this discussion, took place in the synagogue. Either way, part or all of this was happened in the synagogue of Capernaum. But when they find Jesus, they begin to ask him when he came to Capernaum. When did he come here? Now, likely what they were also asking was, how did you get to the city? You sent the disciples away by themselves. You went up in the mountain. It got dark. There was a storm on the water. And now you're here in the city. How did you get? When did you come? But they wanted to know how he got there because there were likely people keeping an eye out for him, how he got there without anyone seeing. In verses 26 to 31, Jesus begins to respond to them and tells them that they hadn't been looking for him because they believed in him or the signs that he had done, but because they had just been fed the day before and they were looking for more food. They were looking for Jesus to do it again. He tells them not to work endlessly for the food, the bread that perishes, physical food. Now, this is not a permission for laziness, but warning that not to spend one's life for the temporary things of this life. This will only leave one's one empty, and it certainly doesn't bring eternal life. Our focus should be on the things that will last for eternity, and not the physical life, but our eternal life that we can only receive from Jesus, from the Son of Man, as he refers to himself here, the Son of God that was sent by the Father. And he says, the seal of the Father on the Son of Man that Jesus referred to is likely the events that happened at his baptism with the, uh, the, the, the Spirit descending and the proclamation from the Father. It also might be the, uh, the signs, the miraculous signs that Jesus was doing, which was the Father authenticating his ministry and who he was. It could be either, it could be both. Uh, there's a little bit of disagreement on there, but that seems to be how the Father has sealed him and for this ministry. Now the people pick up on this idea of works for God. He says, don't work for the for bread that perishes, but do the works of God. And they pick up on this idea of works for God and assume 
that there was there was something that they needed to do. But they seem to have missed part of what Jesus part of what he was saying. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Did you miss it? Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. They missed the word give. They assumed from their current legalistic works-based faith, they had to earn eternal life from God. They assumed there was something that was required of God that they needed to do. They wanted to know what it was so they could go do it. But he answers them and says that the work of God that they needed to do was to believe in him was to believe in him whom God had sent. They needed to believe in Jesus. This was a total contradiction to what they were thinking. Because salvation from sin and eternal death to eternal life cannot be earned by anything we as sinners can do, but only by God's grace through faith on Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and Titus 3, 5. Now, they picked up that Jesus was referring to himself as the one sent by God, so they sought a sign as proof, causing them to believe, because as Paul records in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs. It was taught among the rabbis at the time that when Messiah came, he would repeat the miracle of the manna in the wilderness. They wanted to see Jesus prove his Messiahship by causing manna to fall. But faith that is based on sight and proofs can lead one astray. We must base our faith on the Word of God. The side note, this is why I prefer what is called presuppositional apologetics versus evidentiary apologetics. I want apologetics pre-assuming that God is true versus where's the evidence that proves it. Historical evidence of biblical events are wonderful. They can encourage us they, and they demonstrate the faithfulness of God's words, but they are not and should not be the basis of our faith. Verse 31 here in John 6 quotes a portion of Psalm 78. They tell him, then, then do a sign. Give us a sign. Give us the manna. Because it says that he gave, he gave them manna to eat. He gave them bread from heaven. Now Psalm 78, verse, uh, Psalm 78 recounts Israel's rebellion and unbelief. And the particular section of the verse they quote, verses 21 to 31, recounts they're complaining over food and how the Lord gave them manna and quail and the judgment and discipline that came with that quail. You wanted meat? Okay, here's your meat. Eat until you're stuffed. The food is now rotten. Their judgment over their complaining and unbelief. 
The question here in John 6.31 implies the very old view at this point that though the manna had come from God, it came through the merits of Moses. So Moses provided the manna. Though it came from God, it was God's work, it came because Moses was such a good person. Because Moses was such the great person of God he was. Through his merits, this first deliverer, and through his merits, the manna continued until his death. Since Jesus was saying that he was Messiah, that he was and that he was more or better than Moses, then he should give a sign that is more than Moses. Bring, give us manna. Apparently the feeding of the 5,000 the day before wasn't good enough. It wasn't enough. This gets us a little bit more into our section here as we move into verse 32. This request for a sign and the comparison to Moses brought from Jesus an emphatic response that Jesus that excuse me that Moses was not the one that provided the manna. Jesus said to them, Moses assured or most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. from Moses. It didn't come because of Moses. It came from the Lord. Of his own grace and mercy. It was from the Father. And now the Father had sent true bread from heaven. The one sent by the Father, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. One author comments here, thus the supposed superiorities of Moses and his sign vanish. The manna was used for the body and it was useful, but Jesus is God's whole provision for people in their whole existence. In this scene here, we have a scene that's very similar to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus says that this true bread brings life to the world, to which they ask for him to give it to them always. Unlike the Samaritan woman, they missed the point. The woman wanted the living water so she would stop having to go to the well. These Jewish listeners wanted the true bread to stop the toil of maintaining life. And people today still seek Jesus just for the benefits to their earthly life. But Jesus then explicitly states that he is the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. He stated plainly that not only was he the one sent by the Father as the true bread that gives life, but identified himself as God, the I Am, Yahweh, that revealed himself to Moses and delivered the nation of Egypt. From the nation, from Egypt, excuse me. 
He also stated that he gives the satisfaction the soul longs for as any that come to him will no longer hunger and never thirst. Jesus has referred to the two basic elements of life in a physical sense to express a spiritual truth, bread and water. God gave the nation of Israel bread for 40 years and at least twice provided water from a rock when no water was present. In verse 36, Jesus rebukes the crowd for their unbelief in him and the signs that authenticate his person. He begins to explain the process of salvation and part of his purpose for being there. He explains that God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both involved in salvation. Jesus states that the Father gives men and women to the Son, Jesus, but these individuals must come to Jesus. To come to Jesus is to believe, is to believe on him. And those that come to Jesus, those who believe on Jesus, he will not cast out and will, they will be raised on the last day. Jesus plainly says that he came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. And that includes not losing any that the Father had given to him and raising them on the last day. Verse 40, Jesus summarizes what he has been saying and again claims deity. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Even from this section, we see that we need to recognize Jesus was sent from the Father. The Lord had graciously provided for the crowd at the feeding of the 5,000, just as he graciously provided manna that sustained the nation of Israel during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And in the same grace, he has provided a way of salvation through the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Only by coming to Jesus in faith can salvation and eternal life be received. Have you gone to Jesus in faith? Have you received the bread of life? We see our second season in the next section, verses 41 to 51, that we are drawn to Jesus. Starting in verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last, at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. And we see in this section that we are drawn to Jesus. God draws us to him. Now in verses 41 and 42, John refers to the Jews, no longer the crowd, but the Jews. This seems to be his signifier 
of a, of a group of unbelieving and or hostile listeners to Jesus. Possibly, that likely, this is a reference to some of the religious leaders that were present. Either way, they begin to grumble and murmur just like their ancestors did in the wilderness with Moses. These Jews were murmuring because of Jesus' statement that he was from heaven. They reasoned they knew who his parents were, Joseph and Mary from Nazareth. They referred to him as the son of Joseph, who was his legal father, but not his natural father. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus used the phrase, came down from heaven, referring to himself at least five times in this passage. And they did not believe him. In verses 43 to 47, after he tells them not to be grumbling, Jesus explains further the process of how a sinner comes to God through the truth of God's word. The Father draws whom he wills to the Son by his word. To help prove this point, Jesus quotes from the prophets. Now this is likely coming from Isaiah 54, verse 13. It may also come from Jeremiah 31. But he quotes and says, And they will all be taught by God. This teaching of God refers to the work the Holy Spirit does that moves people to accept the truth about Jesus, bringing a response. All that listen and learn from God become true believers of Jesus. Now the verb that we have here, draws, is used rather, it's used here, but it's a rather strong verb. Its primary use is to refer to physical dragging or hauling of someone or something. It's used for hauling in a fishing net in John 21, verses 6 and 11. It's used of dragging Paul from the temple in Acts 21, verse 30. Of dragging Paul and Barnabas before the city leaders of Philippi in Acts 16. Of hauling or dragging someone into court in James 2, verse 6. Now, each of these New Testament instances indicate accomplishing the dragging. That, what is being dragged, that, that, that action is accomplished. It is completed. But the use of the verb here in John 6 and in, and in John 12, verse 32, are more figurative, referring to the inner person. God draws people to the Son. They draw, he draws them to himself. Now this doesn't mean that God drags someone to salvation against their will. It is still a personal, willful response to Jesus and the gospel. Remember we said earlier that there is divine, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they are in equal balance when it comes to salvation. But God draws whom he has willed, those he called, those he elected, to himself and to salvation. One author explains it this way. The true believer, therefore, is one who hears the word of God, and that word is interpreted to his heart by the Holy Spirit. 
In this way, God acts upon men's hearts and creates that spiritual attraction toward Christ that draws men to him. It must not be imagined, however, that this drawing is a mere influence which may, may be wholesome and beneficial, if followed, but not always successful. The point is, if God is drawing someone to himself, they will come to him. Verses 48 to 51, Jesus again refers to himself as the bread of life. And by doing this, he is not making, he is not making himself the same as the manna that came in the wilderness, but he was claiming to be greater than that bread. The manna that the Lord provided the nation of Israel in the wilderness only sustained physical life. It was full of the nutrients they needed for their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But those that ate the manna still died. Their physical life ended. But Jesus is the living bread that gives life to those that come to him. Eternal life comes from the living bread that came from heaven. And verse 51 closes this section. And there Jesus refers to his flesh as part of the bread. Now, knowing Jesus is the only way to know God. The Jews wanted to see, wanted a sign to see, but they needed to learn the word. Jesus, the Logos, they needed to learn the word. It was only through seeing by God's word that in faith we can come to, come to Christ. Well, let me put this another way. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, or the word of the Lord. Jesus called himself the living bread that came down from heaven. Those, are, those who come to Jesus, who, who come to partake or to eat of the living bread, will have eternal life. And he declares that the bread... He gives for the word, for the world, excuse me, is his flesh. Now this declaration, this is a declaration of his sacrifice. And John is again bringing out the doctrine of Jesus' substitutionary death for the world. Jesus died for the world in, in John 3.16 and here, for his sheep in John 10.11 and verse 15. For the nation of Israel in, in John 11, 50 and 52, and for his friends, John 15, 12. Like the Apostle Paul, we should make this personal. Who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2, 20. Jesus' sacrifice was not just for the believers, but for the world, 1 John 2. What we see in this section is that God is at work in those who will be saved, but they need to hear the word. They need to hear the gospel. We need to go and tell because only the Lord knows who belongs to him. So while God elects or draws individuals to himself through his own sovereign choice, if you have truly come to the Lord in repentance or faith on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, 
then you are saved, and the Lord has drawn you to Jesus. And while the Lord draws individuals to himself in his divine sovereignty, there is still human responsibility in placing one's faith on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This takes us down to our third reason. He provides. He provides in verses 52 to 59. Uh, start, start reading in verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now this this first section, verses 52 to 55, we see the statement of Jesus referring to his flesh as bread needed for eternal life. This sparked another round of striving or disputing or quarreling, fighting from the Jews. They ask how he can give them their flesh to eat. These Orthodox Jewish listeners knew that eating human flesh or any kind of blood was divinely prohibited. Genesis 9, verses 3 and 4, Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 16, and chapter 19, verse 26. What we have here is an example of listeners misunderstanding or not realizing the spiritual truth of the statement by treating it overly literal. Blood was not to be eaten because that is where the life of the flesh is. But, blood was also how atonement was made. In Leviticus 17.11, God makes it very plain. Is through the, I give you the blood for atonement. Jesus wasn't speaking of actually eating his flesh or drinking his blood. He was referring to death, his death as the atonement for the sins of the world, and those that come to him in faith receive eternal life. Many try to bring the Lord's table into this passage. I am not convinced of that. For one, Jesus hasn't instituted the table yet. Historically, that hasn't been established yet. That's still about a year later. Now, while we look at this passage, and it may help add meaning to the Lord's table, it may help illuminate it a little bit more for us, it is not directly here. So this passage does not prove sacramentalism that there is special or more grace to be received or needed through the elements of the Lord's table. Because when Jesus established communion, he clearly presents it as a memorial, and that is how we view it. The eating of the flesh and the drinking of blood language here are figures of speech, meaning to believe on Jesus. Jesus even says, down in verse 63 of this passage, that he is speaking on spiritual 
matters and not literal physical ones. Verse 63 reads, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He tells us that he's speaking on spiritual matters here, not physical ones. And verses 40 and 54 are remarkably parallel in their structure and in their wording, and it gives us a clue to the figurative language of verse 54. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So verse 40 says, everyone who looks on the Son, and verse 54, we have, who feeds on my flesh. Verse 40, and believes in him, and down in verse 54, and drinks my blood. What? Has eternal life. And then the, the extra promise, what? I will raise him up on the last day. He's talking about the same thing, but now he's using physical elements as an illustration, trying to get a point across. And as, we, as the passage starts coming to a close, he summarizes and reconnects these themes that were running through the discussion. The discussion begins to close as Jesus promises that the believer, whomever eats his flesh and drinks his blood, abides in him, remains with Christ. There is an intimacy with and security in Jesus as the believer remains in him and he in the believer. The believer has eternal life from Jesus just as Jesus lives because of the Father. That's how the wording works out. He likens himself to bread from heaven again and reconnects Moses' bread, the manna, which does not give life. The manna of Exodus 16 that the ancient Hebrews ate in the wilderness did not give life. Those people still died physically, and some never truly had faith in the Lord. They argued and disputed and did not trust God many times. But, but those that come to Jesus in faith to eat of the bread of life brings eternal life. It is Jesus that sustains the believer spiritually. Just as physical food and drink sustain the body, Jesus' flesh and blood, his death and atoning work on the cross, give eternal life. Jesus says that he is better than he is greater than Moses, and as the bread of life, he is better than the manna or any physical food. Only Jesus gives life to the believers and sustains the believer for eternal life. Faith in Jesus is ongoing through the life of the believer. We must continually be turning to Jesus in faith. And while true, once saved is always saved, we need to continue to rely on Jesus for the health of our spiritual life 
This would include our daily intake of the Bible, reading, studying, meditating on Scripture, and prayer and corporate and private worship. In this section of John 6, we see the need that we need to realize that, that faith in Jesus is the only means of salvation. And God wants us to come to Jesus and thank for that salvation. Why? divine sovereignty, he draws individuals to Jesus for salvation, though each person is individually responsible to place their personal faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus provides the means of atonement and salvation and the daily spiritual sustenance for the believer. Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father, we thank you for this time that we are able to look into your word, to look at this passage that has been repeated phrase, many terms in it, and it seems confusing first, first But Father, we know that there is much more there than what we just see on your quick reading. pray that each of us here have come, have come to Christ in faith, that we have come to the bread of life and partaken of it. For those that may be here that have not yet done that, Father, I pray for them that you will continue to draw them to work in their that they will listen and be taught by you to your word, to your word spoken of me here, of others that you have in their lives that will speak the, will speak the truth into their lives. I pray for people else as we might know one or two or, or many people that do not yet know you. That you would use us as your, as your tools as you draw them to yourself, that we will plant, and that we will water, and that we will proclaim your word, that you will draw them to yourself. Father, help us to better understand this passage. Help us pray that we have a better understanding. Help us to go forward in full faith in Christ. We thank you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.